Psalm 16 says this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup to hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, and also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is a fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the joy, the pleasure, the delight in knowing you. Father, thank you that you have filled our lives and our experience, even this side of your return with opportunities for joy. God, we uh, confess that so often we look to other things, other places, uh, for our satisfaction. And so, God, we pray that even as we've just heard your word in finding delight in you, God, that you would so stir our hearts and draw us um, by faith and in obedience to find joy that you would command, you would call forth joy from us in you and you alone. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. What is it that makes you happy? If you had to make a list of things large and small, what would that include? Would it be the morning coffee, uh, the daily traffic? No, that probably wouldn't make it. Uh, the simple pleasures, desserts. Uh, things you enjoy. This, uh, believe it or not, is something that people study, probably not the little things, but uh, I found a few different uh, studies about uh, what makes people happy. Kind of a, a global survey, I found at least one, that, that researched what, what is it that people say, this, this is what makes me happy. And one study I read, they read uh, all these different countries responded to this, uh, and they gave 30 different options. They, so you kind of had, you were limited, but these were pretty broad things. Um, and across different countries, different ethnicities, all different things, uh, these were kind of the top handful of things that people said, this is what uh, either makes me happy or would make me happy if I had it. Uh, the top two were physical and mental health and well-being. The next one was a relationship with a significant other. Right behind that was finding meaning in life, having a purpose. And then right behind that was children. So I don't know what that says about us putting children below our own health, or maybe it's just percentage of people. I don't, you know, I don't know how that works out. But anyway, we love you kids, we promise. Um, that seems like a, a pretty good list, you know, things that, things that we delight in, things that make us happy. But I, I, as I was looking through that, I wondered, what, what would the Christian response be? I know that was limited to like 30, you know, from a, from a menu type thing, but what, what would the Christian response be to what makes us happy? How should a Christian respond 
to that question, what makes us happy? One, one common conception, I think, among Christians is that asking about happiness is just asking the wrong question. Doesn't even, well, the Christian response would be, you're asking the wrong question. Well, Oswald Chambers wrote uh, perhaps one of the most famous devotional books we have, My Utmost for His Highest. It's an excellent book. I recommend it to you. It was one of the first things, uh, the youth version of that was one of the first times I ever was spending time uh, alone with God, like in my own. I rec- recommend it to you. Uh, but Oswald Chambers, is, he says this at one point in that book, Joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it's an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with Him. And I wonder if you agree with that. According to Chambers, and what I would assume is a pretty significant percentage of Christians, uh, the question, what makes us happy, would be that we should say, that's, that's irrelevant, it doesn't matter, my happiness doesn't belong to God, my joy might, but that's not really the point either, don't ask dumb questions like that. Okay, Oswald Chambers probably would have a more eloquent way of saying that, but that's essentially, it seems like, what he's getting at. And I think a, a pretty significant amount of preaching and teaching in the church, Christians kind of in general, describe, describe Christian life. I, mean, I don't know if it's a We'll just say some. Some people say it this way. They treat, they act like the way to be a good Christian is to be disciplined and obedient and solemn and stoic and hard-nosed and, you know, you shouldn't be happy. If you're happy, you're probably doing something wrong, you know, right? Like, joy is over here. Happiness is out there in the world. But now that we come in here, we are serious and we mean it, you know? And we're going we're gonna to obey God and that's going to be, you know, we'll have joy in trials, but you can't, you can't tell we have joy because we're serious about life, you know? I think, whether or not, we, we don't say it that way, but that... that that can be kind of the, the ethos, the feeling of the church sometimes. The way, we, the way we teach and preach is happiness was something that, that sinners did out there and some kind of backsliding Christians, they, they seek out happiness. But we in the church, we are serious. <laughs> we are serious. Now, I get where there's the, the kind of that mentality is coming from. It can be to say, we, we have a, a deep joy that is not tied to our circumstance. That is, that's deeply Christian. That is deeply Christian. And we can see that some people chase happiness, and we're going to see this as we go, but chase happiness in, in the things of the world, the things of the flesh, whether it be alcohol or immorality or materialism, whatever else it may be. So Christians rightly call for a repentance to say that that, that isn't pursuing those things will not, it is not the right way to go. But to say that's the, that's the happy thing, and this over here is not, Christians is not, is, is missing the way the Bible talks about a great gift from the Lord. Randy Alcorn wrote, God is decidedly and unapologetically anti-sin, but He is in no sense anti-happiness. Do you believe that? Do you believe God wants you to be happy? That, that, that feels, that kind of grades at us a little bit. At least it does me. I have to kind of wrestle with that. C.S. Lewis, I could quote this one sermon he gave just about every week. He, something in the, the sermon, The Weight of Glory, applies almost every week. But he says this right at the beginning of that sermon. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant or the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward 
and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he said, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at sea, we are far too easily pleased. You see what he's saying there? He's saying the world wants to chase happiness in all the things of the world. But the answer to that is not to say, stop trying to be happy. It's, what are you finding your happiness in? Where is your true joy? Where is your true satisfaction? C.S. Lewis was pointing out, our problem is not our desire for happiness. It's where we're looking for that happiness. If our understanding of the Christian life is decidedly unhappy, like we, we see that Christianity is just about putting your nose to the grind and suffering through the hardships and finding no, no happiness, you're going to have a, a hard time uh, reading honestly pretty significant amounts of Scripture, including Psalm 16. If your version of Christianity does not include happiness and joy, and the, the experience of joy, like really feeling joy, really feeling happy, I, I don't know how you read Psalm 16. You say, okay, well, the word happy is not there, but glad is about as simple of a synonym from happiness as I can think of. Psalm 16, 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Do, as Christians, do you, are you trying to like rewrite that somehow or can you, can you just hear that as what it is? My heart is glad. That, that's not some superficial or fake version of joy. My heart is glad. My whole being, like head to toe, I'm feeling joy. I'm feeling gladness. Okay, joy, gladness, okay, but, but let, let's just let's draw a line somewhere. I mean, pleasure. Now, that, if there's ever an unholy, unholy word, surely pleasure would be, be on the unholy list, right? I mean, sure, joy, happiness, but you can't say pleasure. That's, that's, that sounds unholy, right? Psalm 1611. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. Do you believe that? Do you believe God wants to give you not just joy in your trials, not just a, a, a future hope that will one day bring happiness, but there is a, a real present sense in which God wants to make you happy in Him. Amen. Do you believe that about God? Hebrews 1.9, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Isaiah 52, 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. In that little list that Isaiah gives, happiness is put in as a synonym for salvation. Happiness, synonym for salvation. You can keep going on and on throughout Scripture, but God, here's what God wants you to know from His Word. He, he wants you to be happy. He wants you to be happy in the right ways, in the right places. Sin, as we'll see in a moment, is not a good source of happiness. You know, from the kind of 60s, 70s movement, there was a hedonistic uh, kind of mentality. I'm going to do what feels good, right? The problem, it wasn't the desire for feeling good. The, the, the problem was where they were looking for it. 
It didn't satisfy. It wasn't, wasn't solving the desire. The desire was given to us by God. What father does not desire for their child to be happy? And God is the greatest father of all. Or to switch metaphors and relationships, God describes us, the church, as his bride. What, what husband does not want his, child, his wife to be happy? Doesn't pursue her joy. God pursues our joy. So I want to spend today, and, and Psalm 16 is too rich. I'm, I'm going ahead and committed. I'm not going to make it all the way through the end. I'm just going to go to about verse 6 and save the rest for next week. So two weeks over Psalm 16, because I, I think this idea of where true gladness, true joy, true pleasure comes from is vital. And I, for one, am saying I have a lot to learn about happiness because I can tend to be grumpy. <laughs> so, so here we go. Uh, the main thing I wanted you to see in the first six verses of Psalm 16 is that there are two contrasting options. There's, there's, there's two choices here. There's something about sorrow and there's something about joy. Sorrow and joy. So what, what increases your sorrow and what increases your joy? So I want to start with the alternative to happiness, with the sorrow. Verse 4, it says this, The sorrows of those who run after other God, another God shall multiply. So for you this morning, I want you to know this. Treasuring false gods multiplies sorrow. Treasuring false gods multiplies sorrow. If you are seeking after joy, the way not to do it is to go after false gods or idols. Now, let's put ourselves in, in David's context. We think David, David's the, the name given at the top of your psalm here as the author. So let's put ourselves in David's context. What did he mean by going after another God? In the ancient Israel, Israelite world, they were surrounded by all kinds of other nations and every other nation had some other god that they worshipped, whether it be Baal or Asheroth or Dagon. And oftentimes, Israel, the Israelites themselves were tempted to chase after those gods. And so David is pledging allegiance and saying, I will not chase after these other gods. I am I'm devoted to the one true God. I'm not going to go after these other gods. And the way he describes that, he says, verse, verse 4 continues, Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. Now, the, offering, the whole offering system of the Old Testament is a little bit strange to us, but one example of an offering was a drink offering, often wine. And the way they would bring that, in, in, even the Israelites, so the Jewish people, uh, would bring, a, a, bring wine, but instead of them drinking it, they would give it to God, and the way they give it to God is to pour it out, to say, I'm sacrificing it. I don't have it. it. I'm not partaking of it. I'm giving to God, so I'd pour it out. But here, for these other nations... He's saying apparently some of their sacrifices were not wine, but blood. Hopefully from animals. I didn't actually look. I'm sure it's animals, right? Not people. Could have been. Who knows? They did all kinds of crazy things. But what, what David's saying here when he says, they, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So what he's saying is these, these other nations, the, Israel was forbidden from drinking the blood of an animal because the blood represents the life. And so these other nations, if they poured out some, that means it's something that they would drink. So they would take the blood of other animals as a way of saying, I'm trying to get life, the life of the sheep or the life of the goat or the ox, whatever. I'm trying to get life from it. And David's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not touching that pagan, gross you know, form of <laughs> sacrifice because I know where my life comes from. It does not come from Dagon or Baal. It comes from the Lord himself. He alone is the source of life. And I will not try to get life from something other than God. 
God alone is the source of life. And so you say, of course, no problem. I have no temptation to go kill, you know, Randy Masters goats and drink the blood of the goats, right? It's not, not a temptation that we face. But we could switch out the details and see we are, in fact, tempted in similar ways. Just as in the false religions around Israel in David's time wanted to get life from idols, so too we try to get life from created things. We say things like, this is what I live for, right? Is that your job? Is that the football game? Is that uh, some opportunity you have, some, some moment you enjoy? Could be a good thing, but we say, this, this is life-giving to me. Where are we getting our life from? What gives us satisfaction? What gives us joy? It may be a good thing or a bad thing, but if it's something other than the Lord ultimately, then we're making it into a false God, into an idol. Perhaps what sustains us, what gives us life, the thing that gives us a sense of assurance and security is the number in our bank account. As long as I've got this number, then I feel secure, and that's what I'm relying on. Maybe it's a growing wealth, a year-over-year gains type thing. Maybe that's what gives you a sense of satisfaction. Maybe we look for life in, in things that we lust after, things that we try to please ourselves with. Maybe we look for life in, in productivity, getting things done. We feel, we feel better about ourselves as long as we can be accomplishing something. We don't go after literal drink offerings of blood, but if we're looking for life, satisfaction, joy, thriving, and something other than God Himself, then we're making it into a false god. We're making it into an idol. And the Word tells us that thing, we feel like we're, we're looking to, to, to increase our life, increase our joy. Instead, it multiplies sorrow. Verse 4 said, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Treasuring false gods does not multiply your joy, it multiplies your sorrows. I had an Old Testament professor who kind of turned the light bulb on for me, understanding how this works. The reason that idols are not good gods is that idols don't love you. Your bank account does not love you, right? You, you, cannot, you cannot serve this thing and it, and it seek your welfare. It's not going to be out for your good. It doesn't love you back, and so it's going to continue to ask for more and more and more. You know how this works. They never, idols never let us rest. They don't love us enough to let us rest. If, you, if money, prosperity, climbing some ladder is, is your goal, if that's the thing that makes you alive and gives you life, you know what happens when you get to the rung you're trying to get to? There's always one more ahead of you. The bank account gets to this number. Well, it's not this number. Okay, now it is, but it's not this number, right? There's always one more. There's always something else. There's never enough. Lust is that way. If you think some kind of sexual encounter is going to somehow satisfy you, the next day you want more. It never leaves you alone. It just keeps feeding and asking. It doesn't love you. It just wants more. Take productivity. Sometimes it's good to accomplish things. But if that is your source of satisfaction, you know what happens as soon as you cross one thing off the to-do list? There's two more that got added to the bottom, right? It doesn't love you. It, it just keeps growing. It never satisfies you. If your health is your God, you can serve it all you want. But you can always be stronger. You can always be faster. You could always be prettier. And you're not getting any younger. <laughs> it is a terrible God to serve. 
it will not satisfy you. It will not let you rest. It will only increase your sorrow. It will not increase your joy. It's deceiving because for a short while, any number of good things, as we'll see, some of these are good things from the Lord, they, they can give us a, a sense of happiness for a short while. We could say, I, I enjoy this good thing. But if it is the ultimate thing, not God, if, if we're saying this is, the, this is what I chiefly delight in, this kind of success and whatever it may be, then it, it will ultimately leave us miserable, unsatisfied. We, we, we can't, there's always one more level to go. And we'll just be sorrowful. But there is, praise God, an alternative. If we seek false gods, we're going to multiply our sorrow. But David is rejoicing in the fact that he knows the one true God. And the more he treasures him, the more his joy multiplies. Treasuring false gods multiplies our sorrows. Treasuring the Lord multiplies our joy. There is a deep, sustainable, life-giving, true experience of joy available to those who treasure Christ, treasure the Lord above everything else. He loves to give good gifts to His children, and when we enjoy Him and enjoy His gifts, our joy is multiplied. What do, what do I mean by treasure? Why that word treasure? Verse 2, David says, I have no good apart from you. No good. That means all the good things that He does have, they were gifts from the Lord. God is the supreme, the ultimate, the highest good, and the source of all that is good. We heard James 1, 17 earlier, earlier. He's the Father, the, good, the giver of all good gifts. Again in verse 5, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. So he's saying every, everything that's laid out for me, there's a buffet of options that I could choose from. What am I going to choose? What do I want more than anything else? I want, I want the Lord Here's, here's my portion. Here's my cup. I, I want the Lord. He is who I want. He is what I treasure, what I enjoy, what I desire most. Why? What, what is it about him that makes him so enjoyable, so much of a treasure? Verse 1, he, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. That, that, that desire, it's a, it's a normal, healthy human desire for safety and protection. But if safety is your idol, you're, you're always going to feel unsafe. But when you trust in the Lord, you can say, He is my refuge. He is the one who keeps me safe, and I trust Him to watch over me. I trust in the Lord, not in my own version of safe. The safest place imaginable is knowing God. God, He, he is the refuge. He is the one I trust in. Why else, is he, why else do we treasure Him? Verse 2, He says, I say to the Lord, if you're looking along in your English translation, that first version of Lord is going to be all caps, Yahweh, I say to Yahweh, the Lord, you are my Lord, regular L, lowercase O-R-D, Adonai. The Lord Yahweh, He is my sovereign Lord. He is the one in charge of everything. There is one who is ruling and reigning, and He's saying, I'm trusting in you. I'm submitting to you as the one who is in control of all things. And then I love verse, the part of verse 5. He says, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. What does He, what does he mean by that? Oftentimes you read in the Bible about them casting lots, right? So, uh, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap. So this is a, a, like a, a thing of chance, right? It just looks like, just like rolling the dice. What cards you're dealt kind of thing. And he says, the Lord is sovereign even over that. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, 
but it's every decision is from the Lord. All the so, so seemingly random things David says that happen in life, my lot, that is all, I'm trusting it all to the Lord. He's saying, what, we would say, this is the, the cards I've been dealt. This is the hand I've been given. And saying, all of it belongs to the Lord. I'm submitting my entire life to Him. He is sovereign. He is ruling over all the things. I, the, if the Lord is our treasure, we submit to Him as Lord over everything. He is reigning over every decision and everything that happens. I, I'm, I'm bleeding over a little bit into verse 7. I could, there's one more right there next to it. I couldn't skip it. One more reason about, about God. He is our counselor. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. He, he directs us. He guides us. He doesn't leave us alone to figure out. He didn't just give us a manual and say, go figure it out on your own. <laughs> he is our counselor day by day, guiding us and directing us. If He is your treasure, then He is our refuge, our protection. He is our counselor, and He is our Lord. Do you see that in Him? If you truly trust God, that, that is where we can turn for all those things we desire. We, we need... Man, life is so chaotic and out of control so often, is it not? There, there are, I mean, even today, like Lydia woke up with a stomach bug and my wife's in charge of tonight with Melissa and the team. Like, how am I going to figure out how we're going to run Camp Kidfinity when the direct, and I'm supposed to teach the Bible lesson, so I can't stay home. And like, what are, I don't know what we're going to do, you know? We'll figure it out, I guess. But you know what? Who's still, who's still on the throne? The Lord. The Lord is still on the throne. Life is just always full of chaos, is it not? And the Lord is on the throne. If we treasure Him, we can trust He is sovereign. He is in control. And he, he's got it. He's got it. He is our refuge. He is our counselor. He can direct us. And, and how do you treasure Him? What, is it, what does it mean to, to treasure Him? I, I know these things about Him, but then how do I actually treasure Him? Verse 8, again, I'm stealing this from next week, but we'll, there'll be plenty more there. I have set the Lord always before me, meditating on those things. The, the way you express that I value God, I treasure God, is to say those things back to Him. You are sovereign. Yahweh, you are my Adonai. You are the sovereign one over me. You are the one in control. Thank you that you are in control. You are my greatest treasure. I value you over it. I continue to set the Lord always before me. John Piper says, by declaring and exalting in who God is for him. Not just saying it, but overflowing with his own feelings about who God is for him. That's how we treasure God. Rejoicing in God as we bring him to mind over and over again. That's treasuring the Lord. And when you do that, it multiplies your joy. It multiplies your joy. Verse 6, he says, The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's a bit of a confusing sentence. What does he mean by lines? What kind of lines is he talking about? Well, verse 3, there's some words here to give us context. Verse 3, we had the word land. Verse 5, there's the word portion. Verse 6, we get lines and inheritance. So the kind of the extended metaphor he's using is of the people of Israel coming into the promised land and everybody gets a segment of land. This is your property, what you, what you value. So these, these lines are boundary lines. He's saying the, the boundary lines, the place of a property that I have, it's, it's fallen into pleasant places, right? And, and in the ancient world, there was, a, there was no stock market, no stock options. You didn't have a, a, an IRA account. The, what you had, your wealth, primarily was in land. And so he's saying, he's thinking about 
What, what is in my inheritance? What is, what's the value I have? Well, my, my lines have fallen in pleasant places. Well, is David just saying, I mean, this is easy for David to say, is he just saying, I'm the king and I got more land than anybody else, so my land, my boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking, he may have had, he did, I'm sure, have plenty of land, but that's not his delight. What's his delight? Well, the same word in verse 6 that's, that's um, translated pleasant places, in verse 11 is, just, is given just as the word pleasures. Pleasures. And so what he's talking about is that we have pleasure in the Lord. The Lord is my treasure. He is my pleasure. He is the one I have that gives me joy. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I, the, the joy I have is that I have the Lord. That's my inheritance. That's what I, that's what I have. That's where my wealth, my value is, is that I, the, the boundary lines around my possessions is that I've got God. Or maybe more properly, God has me, you know. That's the picture. That's the picture. His value is not in something of this world, something tangible, some property. He's got God, and that's satisfying him above everything else. He is the one that gives true happiness, David says. He is the one that truly satisfies our souls, knowing God is the greatest joy, the greatest happiness imaginable. Now, does that, does that mean that nothing of this world can be anything that we enjoy? We just... The only thing we enjoy is God by Himself. Well, no, right here in the psalm, He rejoices over a gift given to Him by God. He's celebrating verse after verse about God. And in the middle of that, verse 3, He says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. This is a psalm about joy. It's a psalm about satisfaction. It's a psalm about celebrating God. And one of the things He celebrates is that He has been given other brothers and, brothers and sisters in the Lord. This side of Jesus, we would call those Christians. We have other Christians to celebrate and enjoy. He gives one, one example of a gift God has given and says, even this, this can be a way of enjoying God is delighting in the gifts that he gives. But the, the, the key is remembering they are gifts from God. They are not joys all by themselves, they are gifts from the Lord. I, I pray and I hope that you know the joy of Christian fellowship. Do you know what it is to delight in other saints, to delight in brothers and sisters in the Lord? If you don't know that, a couple things could be going on. One, just taking the time. Friendship takes time. It takes time to build relationships and to truly delight in those relationships. Another thing, though, is just understanding we, we have to be people who ha share the same ultimate joy, right? People who both enjoy the same you know, basketball team or whatever, they, they mutually delight in that team. If we mutually delight in Christ, that's what's going to draw us together. If you're not delighting in the same thing, if one of you doesn't delight in Jesus, then it's going to be hard to find the same delight together. But God says, here's, here's an example of one way you can, you can enjoy me is to enjoy the brothers and sisters the other saints I have given you in Him. Every good gift is from God. Enjoying gifts from God is doing just that, recognizing the giver of the gifts. Living a life of gratitude is a way of living a life of celebrating and enjoying Him. And living a life of contentment. Whatever lot God has given me, whatever the, car, the cards that I have been dealt, can I be satisfied with that? Can I be satisfied with this is enough? Whatever I have, this is enough. 
gratitude and contentment are great sources of joy because God is in charge of over all things. One of the, one of the most helpful ways I know of, of coming to the Psalms is reminding ourselves that Jesus, when he walked this earth, he had these Psalms. These, these were written down before him. He, he would have sung and read and prayed these Psalms many times. So just imagine what it was like for Christ to be able to pray these kind of things back to God. What, what pleasures would, would Jesus have had as he sings the Lord? I, I mean, we picture Jesus even as a young child, the time that his mother and father left him back in Jerusalem. They come back and they find him and he says, well, where else would I be but in my father's house? What was he doing but taking joy, delighting in his relationship with the Father. With the God, reading through the Gospels, you can hardly turn a page or two without Jesus going up on a mountain by himself to pray. He was delighting in his relationship with his Father. And that same happiness, that same joy, that same delight carried from beginning to end, even to the point where the night before he died, he, he said, this cup, God's will for my life, I, I wish it wasn't quite like this, but I trust that he is Lord, he is sovereign over all things, and I'll take it if you want me to take it. He warned us to repent, to turn away from sin, and he knew that those who didn't would only multiply their sorrow. He knew Judas would not be a happy person in the end because of his sin. He knew Pilate would be tormented and not find happiness. He knew that the Pharisees were not happy people. Man, they seemed to be grumpy people. He knew that their sin was leading to sorrow, not to joy. And even as he followed all the way in obedience to God. He was continuing to seek God as his refuge, even as the guards were coming to arrest him. He trusted God as sovereign and Lord, even as he went to the cross, because he knew that in God he had an inheritance that was far more glorious than anything this world could offer. And you know what part of his inheritance is? Ephesians 1.18 talks about Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Jesus went to the cross, died, buried, was resurrected, so that He could get an inheritance. That's that's one of the things David's celebrating in verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And we are part of the inheritance Jesus was thinking about all the times he would have prayed Psalm 16. I have a beautiful inheritance, and I'm willing to go to the cross so that I can inherit them for eternity. He knew the joy. He knew the satisfaction of walking with God. He was willing to live in obedience to God, no matter the cost, because that was the greatest joy. There was nothing better the world could offer him. There was no greater satisfaction than following God. Sin only multiplies your sorrow but following the Lord in obedience is your greatest joy when you treasure Him above everything else. Randy Alcorn says that our message to the world should not be, don't seek happiness. Instead, it should be, you'll find in Jesus the happiness you have always been seeking. Treasure Jesus. He, he is the only one who multiplies your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for putting our lines in pleasant places for all those who have trusted in you. God, we have you, and that is not just enough, but far more abundant than all we could ever hope or imagine. 
Father, as, as Infinity Church, we, we celebrate that, that infinitely greater than we could imagine joy that we have in you. We celebrate that it's a great privilege and a great honor to know you. And it's a great joy. Father, we, we confess we put our joys in so many other things, so many lesser things. And so we trust God that this time we would be able to use this time of worship to confess that sin, to trust in Christ, to see what he's accomplished for us. So that once again, you can bend our hearts more and more toward you to be shaped, to be more and more like your son. That we would find our ultimate satisfaction in you. Lord, bless us as we sing, as we go from this place, and uh, as we gather back here together tonight uh, with kids to have a whole lot of joy, a whole lot of happiness, a whole lot of fun. We pray that our joy would be in you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.